And we're live. All right. So you missed all the pre-show shenanigans, but that's okay. I'm sure we'll act all crazy in the meantime. But uh, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans <laughs> geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that plays the fun the in dysfunction. Without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Scott Moon, introduce himself. Oh, God. Hi, everyone. Hey, I'm Scott Moon. I'm a sci-fi writer. Uh, I've known JR for quite a bit. We've, I think we kind of met through uh, Galaxy's Edge or something like that. Maybe we knew each other before that. But yeah, so, so I, I, I write a lot of science fiction. That's my thing. It's my jam. So, so if you become is... too good a friend of JR as he drags you onto the show, is that what I'm hearing? Yes, yes, that's how it works. Exactly. Yeah, I don't have any other friends me. otherwise. I stalk the people and I make them like me. Um, so that's, I almost said, Doc, legit. when when we were doing the intro, I almost said, and JR is the king, but I'm like, no, you'll mock me for it. So I'm just going to pretend like I'm cool and just ride with it. You're not pretending hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the next part of the introduction is actually how we first met them. So I actually found you through the Keystroke Medium uh, through the podcast. I think I found that you at right. like episode 12 of season one. That's early, early on. Yeah. Yes. And then we met. Dark, dirty secrets. Yeah, then we met in Vegas in 2018 at the 20 Books to 50K conference. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. There were stuffed animals involved, uh, taxidermy kind, not not like dolls, docs, stop it, don't make it weird. And uh, You're the one who's bringing up furries, not me. And Cope, I didn't say anything about furries. Like, stop that. No, no, don't go there. They're going to mean the hell out of that. But um, anyway, so, uh, and booze, there was definitely booze involved. There was some booze. I'm going to, not going to lie. <laughs> in vegas i mean really right and it, we was at the the was it the sam's sam's town is this sam's the name of the hotel sam's, sam's town, yeah. yeah it's the epicenter of hopelessness and despair that's what it is yeah it's it's awesome though they had that that bar in the middle where the uh the eagle show played every like 45 minutes yeah that was annoying but the, it was cool to meet the, with the, everyone in the just, like, chat. yeah the animatron eagles would like take off and screech and there'd be music and fireworks and then we'd go back to drinking it was fantastic and sometimes we drank through it because it made it more bearable. Yeah, true. No wonder JR came back from that con so traumatized. <laughs> no, the, the the horrible part about that hotel is the smoke was so thick. Like even in a yeah. non-smoking room, my CPAP machine, I had to throw away all the plastic. It came back yellow from all the smoke in yeah. there. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it was it's bad. Pretty harsh. Pretty Although harsh. you did get your extra you got your steps in walking around the place, which you know, I guess that's the yeah. good thing about Vegas. So oh, yeah. all right, Doc, did you know him before today's episode? No, I did not. You said, hey, come here. I have a friend. And I went, are you sure? <laughs> I, and he came to see proof of friend. There you go. Yes. <laughs> for, for Nick, we worry about proof of life. For JR, we worry about proof of friend. But you notice yeah. he's, he's hiding in his car, so he didn't want anyone else to know we're friends. He's like, no, nah, they Pictures can't or didn't this. happen, yeah. Right. <laughs> I got pulled over, actually. Waiting for he's my in an undisclosed location. Yes, undisclosed location. Yeah. Now, if he was Nick Cole, he'd be doing this at night with like the light given at the noir effect. Now, listen here, yeah. kids. See here. Yeah. In but, a dark uh, parking right. garage someplace. Absolutely. The all only right, reason I knew he wasn't drunk was because he was driving. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, I'm stationary, so that makes things a little bit easier. Concerning my driving <laughs> <Yeah>. habits. <laughs> all right, Doc. The next one is you. You get to ask him the religion question. This is an important one. Okay. So Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? There is a wrong Oh, my answer. God. That's so hard. It can't be like a, what would he, 
the what's the uh the Trinity. The Trinity can't have all three and do the Trinity. No, I'd go what's probably go I'm gonna have I'll have to go with Star Wars depending on which part of Star Wars you're going with. You get to pick. Empire Strikes Back. Okay. I think that is my favorite. That is so, acceptable. Now we move on. You know they just announced they're doing a new Star Wars movie. No, they're not. They did three, and it's just a shame. Yeah, no, they're going to do, like, they're bringing back, um, what's his name, who played Anakin as a teenager and everything. Mm. Wow. Okay. I will say, looking at the picture, the guy who played Obi-Wan aged much better. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Yep. Is is that the Kenobi trailer, or is that a different Yeah, Kenobi. Yeah, we'll see. I I try to remain... You know, I, I go into those just like I try to like wipe my brain before I go in and just watch it like I never saw it because I know I'm going to be so well, put out if I think about too hard. Star Wars fan, right? Who's not a true Star Wars fan? Uh, you know how to tell a true Star Wars fan oh, yeah. leaving the movie theater? They're the ones crying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and usually angry. Yeah. I didn't say yeah. they were sad tears. They're like angry. Like, <laughs> tears of really? rage. Space Vespas? Really? I mean, come on. Yeah. Oh my God. That, yeah. Oh my God. That was a new low. The Space Vespas were literally the new low. Which, yeah. And they, you know, this is just me because I've been in a desert before. They were too clean. Like in this exactly. backwater planet that's supposed to be run down. You know, Boba Everything Fett showed us that. Clean. Everything was too clean. Yeah. Well, the, the, the Space Vespa reminds me of that Austin Powers scene where he's in the little golf cart trying to turn it around under the, yeah. the bunker. <laughs> That's the, that's that's what it was about. Like, uh, see, this is why we're friends, Doc. He knows. He gets you it. Keep saying that. Do you know what that word means? No, I'm kidding. Sure. Go on. Continue. <laughs> Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Wheel of Time. Game of Thrones. Really? Oh yeah. I, I didn't think I you'd like, go for the grim dark. I like the dark. I like the darker stuff. So I like. Um, I like Game of Thrones, but I like like Bernard Cornwell. If you're reading his stuff, like a, a lot oh, of his historical stuff. fiction, yeah. Well, Sharps is really good, but then he has a he has a bunch of, like Saxon Chronicles and things, and it's very similar as far as the level of of uh, everybody. You know, life is cheap in the in those types of settings. So yeah, I like this. It's a little more intense. So did you like Stargate Universe since it was grittier of the Stargate franchises? I, I don't think I saw it. Somewhere I fell off the. I fell off the. Uh, since I work nights, you know, my entire adult adult life and on callouts a lot, I fell behind on a lot of the real classic sci-fi, like uh, like all the next generation stuff and everything. And so Stargate, I watched very intermittently, and I tried to go back and watch the whole thing from the beginning, like a year ago, and and I couldn't do it. It was it was not what Can't I remembered. Goodness. Yeah. Oh Can't yeah. I was good. like, especially that, that first episode. I'm like, oh my god. And so then I just I just I fell off and started watching some other things. You know, it's easier to cope with the nostalgia effect or like mm-hmm. the nostalgia telling you that oh, I love this, but it's really not as great as I thought. If you make a drinking game out of it, yeah, there you go. So, See, that's I wasn't I didn't do any pre gaming for it. I probably there you go. Made it a lot easier. So I guess it yeah. depends on your your ability to tolerate cringe and cheese factors in movies because I don't. I don't Obviously, mind. it's high if he's your friend. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all yeah. about the B movies, right? Like, give me some werewolf like, space Nazis. Like, I'm I'm down. I went back and watched uh, Escape from New York, the first one, and other than the fact that the, the intro was really slowly paced, you know, compared to the makes now, 
it was I actually really loved it. And mostly it's because there was some really good characterization. The dialogues were awesome. Kurt Russell had some great lines, even though he didn't talk that much. But but I remember watching it and there's like this scene where this helicopter lands for like a minute and a half. I'm like, <laughs> that would not they would not take ninety seconds on that. That would have been if they even showed it, it would have been like a four second clip as the helicopter comes in. But they showed the whole thing. You know, like you're at an air show or something like, wow, we've come a long ways in our cinematography. I definitely yeah. think it's changed stylistically how we do things. It's yeah, like cultural it's ADD. Yeah, exactly. We definitely, things move on at much greater clip. I think if you go look at a movie, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a scene that's longer than a minute or two long, like in one place. It's it's very uh, smash cut, this, that, and all that stuff. And anyway, the, the, there's a reliance too much on CGI instead of quality character. Not my favorite. Too. Yeah, that, that that's like uh, we I watched World War Z and I thought this is going to be the worst pile of crap ever because the previews made it look like it's all about the the uh, special effects. But that was actually really good as far as movies go. I really enjoyed that one. I, that sci I've heard but, good things about it, but it falls under the zombie movie stuff, and I don't do zombies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. As you say, it's it's one of those ones where, like, if you like that kind of stuff, the book was definitely better. I don't say that all the time. I'm not like a zealot in that regard, but the short stories mm -hmm. were. Oh yeah. So. Yeah. So. All right. Moving past this uh, foray into multimedia, and going back <laughs> to your development as an author, what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy, Scott? It, my first love was fantasy. I started when I was very young and I'd played Dungeons and Dragons. And basically that's how I got started. My mom said, we should write a, a book for kids your age. I was like 12 and I was playing lots of Dungeons and Dragons. And so I started fight, war, a big dungeon dive orc battle thing. I wrote on a bunch of legal pads. And, oh, and wow. Then just, yeah. Then it, went from, then it went from there. And then eventually got where I could use a computer and print it on dot matrix. You know, it was great. <laughs> it was, you know. We were high tech back then. So. Do you do you still have that? My mom says she does, but she's got a lot of stuff. So I, 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 I'd have to go dig through some of her storage items to see if we have. I do have a bunch of notebooks. When I was about 16, I wrote a fantasy novel called The Sword Peddler, and I wrote it out on um, Mead tablets by hand. And I remember writing, like, I'd be at, like, family events, like extended family events, like Thanksgiving, at the dinner table writing at the table. And they would give me a hard time, but it didn't give me too much of a hard time because they're like, I guess if that's the worst thing he's doing, we're going to let him read at the dinner table. And so I would do that. But yeah, I still have those. And they're torn to crap too because I doodled all over them and there's like 15 of them, you know, because there's only like 60 pages in one of those because I was in junior high or whatever. I guess we've been in high school, 16. But yeah, so I have some of that stuff laying around. It's probably frighteningly bad, I'm sure. See, when I tried to, to escape the family gatherings, I got called back. Yeah, I got called back, but yeah, we. It's just interesting. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of room to sit there and, and do your own thing. So, were they shocked when you published your first novel, or were like, oh, it took them long enough? No, they were. So the funny thing is, is my sister she sent me a link about KDP. Well, because I had been I had been submitting stuff traditionally since like. Seriously, I started doing it like in the early '90s, and I'd had lots of rejections. I had one book I submitted and and the entire rejection process took seven years, but they would say, yeah, it made it past the first editor. And if it goes to this one, eventually it'll get to the requisitions editor. I was all excited. And then, you know, like every six to eight months, I would send a polite uh, email 
or actually I think I might even mail a letter back then. I can't remember. And, um, and they would respond with, well, yeah. And then so, and I forgot about it because they quit, quit responding. And then so seven years after I submitted, I got a really nice detailed letter about how the, the, the reader who first read it um, really enjoyed it, thought I should keep writing, but they weren't going to take it at this time. I'm like, I can't wait seven years no, that, between that's submissions. Too long. And that was with, I believe that was with, uh, I want to say it was with Tor, but it might have been with um, uh, Daw. It might, it might have been Daw books. But anyway, so I did all that. And then, but like a year before I published my first self-published book, my sister had sent me a thing about KDP. And, I, and I'm not a real super techie guy. And so I kind of like, yeah, it looks neat. But I didn't really read the email for like almost a year. And I finally I looked at it. I was like, I'm going to try this. And if I would have started a year earlier, I think things would have been a lot different. Because that was that would have put me right in those cowboy days where people were like, where it was much less competition and you, almost anything you wrote would do at least pretty good, you know. So, you know, less you learn as you go. And yeah, now, from now was, on, he reads the emails his sister sends him. Oh, yeah. yeah. Read them and take action immediately, yeah. Does she give you a hard time yeah. about that still? Because if you were my brother, no. I'd probably be writing your ass about that. No, she she's got plenty of other things to to write me about. <laughs> I, I have I'm a I'm a target rich environment for those types of things. Oh, now so my cool. sister's not. So someone's gonna have fun when you get, when you make it big and you're like the the biggest thing ever, and they're writing your autobiography. They're gonna be like, we'll have no problem filling this book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there'll be there'll be material. I'm sure. Probably most of it's really embarrassing. <laughs> What is your first memory engaging in speculative fiction? Is it reading, watching it, playing it, listening to your sister um, gab about boys? That kind of fictional. <laughs> well, fortunately, well, I'm older than my sister, so I didn't have to put up with that until I was old enough to to understand what was going on. But uh, my first memory is I wrote a short story in third grade, and I I remember that it was. Um, about lots of like tube travel, like around the top of a city. And I don't remember much else about the story other than that, but I wrote it in third grade because it was an assignment and it was the only thing I'd ever been praised for by a teacher up to that point. And basically since for so after that. Um, and so I, I really, I immediately identified myself as somebody who can write, even though that was probably not what they meant at the time, because like, uh, I remember, uh, I remember that about the same time I had a student parent student conference and I would get really low grades. I get like C's and D's most of the time. And they said, well, he gets all the right answers. He's just too slow. He doesn't finish in time. And so I would, I think I would like try too hard to get the perfect answer or for whatever reason, it just took me longer. And so I would not finish. And so I wouldn't get all the points. And so I'd get very low grades, but they said he's, they weren't worried about, they said I would eventually get it. So that was the type of feedback I generally got. And then I had the feedback about that same time, like, Hey, this is a really great story you wrote. And from then, from then on, I was all about writing stories. That was my thing. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So the, the, I guess the takeaway lesson is the first thing you're praised for as a child might be a big deal. My teachers <laughs> get real deep here all of a sudden. There you go. I was thinking the first thing I probably praised my child for was how hard he can swing us can hit something. Well, that's good. You know, there's, there's uses for that. No Probably wonder. character one of my stories. <laughs> yeah, I'm right. to my son wanting to be a jock. It makes no sense to me. <laughs> they always do what you don't think they're going to do. That's the crazy thing. I've got four of them now, and none of them, none of they're, they're all defying expectations. Let's just put it that way. So I love them to death. 
they are adventures but uh is that what you love about speculative fiction what is it that brings you joy in speculative fiction and draws you in i just i just i love going to a new place and and um to me it's like the ultimate form of entertainment i also remember very clearly i remember literally sitting at home because i'd come home after school my mom and dad worked like three jobs all the time and so i'd come home and it'd just be me in the house usually because my sister was at a babysitter at that time because i was a little bit older and i remember coming home it would be just me sitting in the house and i'd be so bored and I remember thinking, I hate being bored. And you can almost feel, and I became like a massively chronic daydreamer. I was always daydreaming because there were like three channels. They went off at midnight. Um, eventually we got a VCR, because I'm 52, so I'm dating myself a little bit. And we got a, a VCR, but it was like one of these really big VCRs because my mom was an audiovisual um, supervisor or whatever at the high school. She's a librarian too. And so we would, be allowed to take those home in the summertime to like care for them in the summer every you know they all the technical equipment pre-computer stuff and so we'd have a vcr basically long story short that all i could all i had on the video to watch was the cartoon ricky ticky taffy um <laughs> uh, uh the hobbit the cartoon and then like i think we had managed to record in-laws which was like a movie back in the 70s and that's like all I had to watch. So the, the, the entertainment that was available when I was a kid was super low. And so, I mean, you could make things in the dirt or you could have an imagination. And that's what I, what I went with. So I did, and I did both, of course. Good okay. stuff. That's yeah. a, that's a good but answer. I, that's, why I love, that's what I love about it is because you can get a lot of entertainment mileage out of a book or a daydream yeah. or watching a movie that you're really into. I mean, I, I just, I really like to be entertained. I don't like to be bored. Short answer. So I have there's a friend that. who claims that I'm allergic to it because I seem to pick up more hobbies. Yep, yep. I got there's, a lot of hobbies. There's actually been some very studies. Very that... <laughs> <laughs> there, There's been some studies that say that the um, the sitting alone with your thoughts, which is what um, sort of fosters creativity, and the fact that mm -hmm. so many people nowadays are just glued to their electronical devices, and yeah. that's why you're seeing so many reboots of everything because they're like, well, human creativity is dying. Although I think they're just not looking in the right places. But I, I think there's something to that. Yeah. Like that no, I think part of the major media just wants a guaranteed sell. Yeah, they yeah. want money. That's that's a money thing. But I do I do think that we need to spend more time uh, individually or just in the cathedral of silence a little bit. Like I never did it because I'm always listening to music or a podcast or something I drive. When I met my wife, she'd never radio in her car. And she was like, well, sometimes I'll have to just drive with no no music. And I'm like, you are crazy. But now I find myself driving to work with all, everything turned off. Like, I don't want anybody talking to me. I don't want to listen to a podcast. I'm just going to drive for 20 minutes and just think. And I'm like, that's actually pretty refreshing. It's kind of a, like a reset. You know? See, that can be dangerous, too, because if you get sucked into your thoughts, that's how accidents happen. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's how I wind up in Salina instead of at work because I took the wrong turn and drove eighty miles north. But you know, <laughs> oops, <laughs> oopsies, got got to daydreaming, wound up in another state. Sorry. So you mentioned that your uh, your sister gave you the first inkling that KDP was out there. But what? When do you mm -hmm. remember? It's like that moment where you transitioned from like I'm going to enjoy the stories to I'm going to 
write my own? Because it sounds like that started really early, but do you remember that defining moment where yeah. you said, No, it, huh. it, it was when I, when I was 12 years old, my mom said we should write a book for kids your age. And uh, at the time, they didn't really have uh, middle grade fiction. And, and so it was kind of, and so I started writing, but I remember, th I remember thinking I'm going to, and so all from that point on, I was like, I wanted that to be my job. And like, um, when I worked in a movie theater, when I was in high school, I would had a notebook and I would write stories and I, and I had, and I was, and I was going to buy a red Corvette and cause I was going to be so successful. And so I always, I would just be writing, like, I want to do this professionally. I mean, this would be the life cause I could do all my hobbies, you know, I could get up, write for a few hours, I could go to the gym, I could go you know, do martial arts, I could you know, do whatever. And I just had this, had my, my lifestyle planned out. I was going to be a writer and have lived this life, lives of adventure and whatnot. And, but that's when, I, when she said, you, we should write a book for kids your age. I, that was all it took. I was, that was my thing. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. Did you hear that news story where there was this kid, he was like 11 or 12 and he was, he had to write a book for a school project and he was mm. so proud of it. He laminated every page, put it in a spiral mm. binder and <laughs> dropped it off at the library and just slid it into the stacks and people kept checking it out, even though it wasn't a real book. That reminds me a little bit about you telling us of your childhood. Yeah. You were yeah, that child exactly who would have done that. Yeah. Well, when I was real little, I, I, I didn't understand how books got made into hardbacks really. I'm talking like when I was like, six or seven, or I don't know how little I was, but, but I, we would go for Christmas and I'd always ask for notepads and books, but I wanted journals because they were hardback. And my thing is you write it in the hardback and then you could, maybe it would become a hard, it's like having a hardback book. It would be the, and so I was always handwriting them in these journals. Uh, my grandma was a big garage sailor. So she would always come up with stuff she would find. And I always had these journals and notepads I was writing in. That's literally what I get for Christmas every year. My life was a big stack of um, legal pads and pens. Did you hey, just get like fancy pens? That like, works. Yeah. Did you get like fancy pens, like fountain pens, or like cool pens, sometimes, or was it just thick? So, sometimes, yeah, it just it's kind of hit or miss. Depends. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I had my, my 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 one of my squads at work. I had talked about how I really like going to the office max and buying a fresh pad of paper, even though I don't really write on paper that much anymore. Um, and so one day I came there and they'd got me this really high. High, what's it? The weight? What's the paperweight? High yeah. quality legal pads and this big old pencil. You know, like one that's like as big as your thumb that you had when you were in kindergarten. And they had <laughs> this giant pencil, and and I and so I used it. I'd be sitting there in my office when I was a sergeant, writing with that big kindergarten pencil on my notepad. <laughs> Good job. I love it. That's awesome. That's awesome. So many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So do you think there were any specific formidable moments that shaped the kind of storyteller you became? I think so. Um, and because one of the things was, is I realized I was going to have to work and I, I'd always pick, like I wanted to go to the military real bad and I couldn't, they disqualified me because of migraines. But I wanted to go in there because I figured, well, what a better way than to see some some more of the world? And you know, I bought the recruiting poster. Obviously, you know more about it than I do. But but when I came, when I eventually became a, a police officer, it was the same thing. I'm like, I'm going to see a lot of interesting things that I wouldn't see otherwise. Um, and so I became a police officer because maybe not looking for specific examples to put in books, but to look general things. You know, like confront evil and things like that. And I thought that might help me with my writing. That's Which actually reason, did. Isn't yeah. And so when in 2004, 2005, I was on the BTK task force, which is 
BTK is a serial killer. It was in Wichita. And um, he disappeared for like 30 years and then he made a reappearance. And I was in a gang unit at the time and I got, I got put on that task force, me and like a bunch of other people. And I did it for 11 months. And I remember thinking a lot about what it takes to be that kind of evil and why somebody would, you know, torture people to death and stuff like that. And so when I was writing Urban Fantasy, some of my characters are pretty dark. It's probably why my Urban Fantasy doesn't sell that well, because some of it's pretty dark. Um, but I would, but I, so it did have an influence trying to, trying to um, wrestle with the nature of evil and why people do the crappy things they do to each other. You know, it's this question I still haven't answered, but yeah, who knows? That's a question as old as time. Since I Cain think and Abel. one of those questions where when we have the answer, we're not going to like the answer. Oh, yeah. The answer is not good. The answer is definitely not, not a good thing. So. That's like, that reminds me of that expression my, I think my 10th grade uh, history teacher told us. It's the old proverb, may you live in interesting times. And when I asked him yeah. what I meant, what it meant, he's like, uh, he's like, when you're old enough to understand it, you'll wish you didn't. And that was all he would say. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and now we live in interesting in... times, and I'm like, you son of a biscuit eater. All right. Yeah, exactly. We're definitely in some interesting times. My oldest daughter just took our dog for a walk, so because uh, so, I'm facing our apartment. So, <laughs> so we <laughs> that's here why I'm blast. always looking around. Uh, we just figured you were on a stakeout, and you were just you know, yeah, <laughs> close. So uh, dang it, I should have here... said that. <laughs> we here at the Blasters and Blades podcast are a couple of nerdy veterans. So it says in your bio, and we talked about it already, that you were in the military. So how do you feel like, other than the darkness from the BTK time to your urban fantasy, how do you feel like your time in uniform affects the way you tell stories even still? Well, the biggest thing about it is, is you know, the brotherhood and the camaraderie and the sense of identity. So to clarify, and a lot of people will get to mistake this because I'm more of a... Um, what do you call it? A fanboy of the military. I'm I'm a, a huge fan, but I was never able to actually get out in the military. I I applied for the Marines, and when I was in college, and I went to I started I went to MEPS. I did all that stuff. I went I was in some officer candidate pools, and then after about a year and a half, um, that this was a Gulf War One time. After kind of after that after Gulf War One ended, they started downsizing, and they looked at my medical records a little more closely, and like no. Nope, no, no, thanks. So I never did. And, um, but I really value and respect the military. And, um, when I went into the police department, I thought that's the next best thing I can do. I learned that they're very different. They're more like uh, law enforcement, civilian law enforcement and military are more like cousins than brothers, I guess, uh, because you got different roles, but to answer your question, being in uniform, um, a lot of my stories are, of course, about brotherhood or sisterhood or, you know, groups of people that are, you know, coming together for whatever reason. And uh, it, it just kind of shows you what it matters to really have to watch over the person next to you and have them watch over for you. I know it's really cliche, but but it really does matter who your 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 closest co-workers, you know, and that's what I, I, I really value about it the most is that that sense of brotherhood. And belonging that and found family or something yeah and, and you're working and you know most people are very idealistic uh, when you go into the military or law enforcement you want to be a hero you nobody goes into it wanting to be a bad guy or, or do do things that the the public doesn't like but you go in wanting to save the day and so 
you, you're around people that have similar values. Like I'm doing this, I'm going to make a self-sacrifice for the greater good and it's going to be awesome. So I, I do think you saw yourself a little short on the whole military thing. Cause I can tell you, you know, as a grunt and you do we're SWAT, uh, we both were trained to clean, clear a room. The difference is, is oh, yeah. I didn't have to care if the guy on the other end of my rifle came out alive. You did. That changes the dynamics yeah. a lot. Sometimes that, that's the big thing. No, we don't get to do some, well, we rarely get to do suppressive fire. Although there's a few instances I've been on one or two SWAT calls where it was used, but it, those are very long stories and there was very good reason to use it. Um, but yeah, it, it's, 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 uh, it's a little, a little sketchy sometimes. But when you go into a I fight, was taught as a medic, suppressive fire is the best form of preventive medicine. It is. Yes. I agree 100%. So one of the things, if you've done any kind of martial arts, you realize is when you're fighting not to lose or not to hurt the other person, you're at a severe disadvantage. Oh, yeah. um, and, and so like you guys, it, it's not an easy job you do. So just don't sell yourself short, but moving along, yeah. cause we don't make short jokes cause doc will start making them about me. Um, do you ever <laughs> draw? <laughs> Five nine is not short. You hush. I'm plain, painfully average. Uh, do you ever draw? <laughs> from people you knew when you were uh you served with in law enforcement you said it not me um <clears throat> yeah i i uh i do and i and fortunately i have a lot of a lot of my law enforcement friends are of course the sun's going down here which the the view is nice what i'm looking at but pretty soon you're going to be looking at shadow man here but that's okay maybe i can go into the into the story somehow but uh but i i do have a lot of friends who are currently and were in the military um, I think I lost track of the question. So do you incorporate those people into your stories, oh, yeah. the uh, people you know in uniform? I, yeah, I do. I, inadvertently, everybody kind of comes into a hodgepodge. So I don't. I try not to use individual characters specifically, um, although I have a few exceptions. So when I was writing my Alien Invasion series, I was pushing a deadline and I called my lieutenant. I was a sergeant at the time. I said, hey, I need the day off because i got to finish this book. And he says, all right, I'll, I'll give it to you. Um, but you got to put me in the book because um, <laughs> what, because he was going to have to basically be a Lieutenant and a Sergeant that day. And I said, okay. And I said, well, how do you want to die? And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, well, normally in science fiction, we take people and we red shirt them. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, come on, man. You have to watch Star Trek. He said, I put you in a book. I send you down in a mission. You get brutally killed in action and you're a hero. And he goes, no. Because ah, that's not what I'm looking for. I said, so you want to live and kick ass? He goes, yeah, I want to live and kick ass. So you have to be a main character. He's like, yeah, I'm like, fine. And so I made him a character, and his name is Christopher Halloran in the Alien Invasion series. And he's like an ex-recon Marine because he was a Marine. And uh, and he's like now works for this private company as a security head of forces. But since I put him in there, made him a badass, but then I decided to just basically nearly kill him so many times that he's about two thirds cyborg by the end of the series. You know, he was okay with that because by the end he's got like a chain gun mounted to his arm and stuff. And he's like, yeah, that's cool. I can, I can live with that. So, that's yeah. awesome. But so that, that's one story about how I, and then I have a couple of rookies. I needed some names and they were teasing some of the rookies in my current squad. And, um, and I said, okay, I'm going to put these guys in there. So I put, uh, two, two of my newest officers in as archangels, which are like side characters, but they're like kind of like one of the main characters, bodyguards, and they wear like powered armor and they just, they're just young and gung ho and ready to blow things up. And so, so like I have a good time rookie. for them. Yeah. Yeah. Like every rookie. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, and they enjoy it. And I gave them the books and one of them, well, 
I'm not sure if they both read them, but one's like started listening to the audiobooks and he's like, damn, these are good. I'm like, see, I'm not kidding. Thought I was, at work, everybody kind of treats it like a joke. Like last night we went to a standoff uh, where ATF and some, some of our tactical guys had surrounded some people and got him in his house and it's probably going to be a SWAT call. Well, I showed up because it's on my bureau and the negotiator knows I'm a writer. He goes, so how are we going to, you going to write the ending for this one moon? What are we, what are we going to have? Like some sort of fantasy fairies in the attic come down and get them. I says, no, I'm thinking space lasers on this one. You know, and they, 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 uh, they get a kick out of it. But, uh, but I do have a growing number of people at work that have actually read my books and, 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 and will come by and tell me, you know, what they think of them usually pretty positive. So, yeah, that's, that's cool. So it's fun. We have fun with it. We hang a lot of trash on each other and that's just an easy one for me. They're like, what are you going to put in there? Dragons? I'm like, oh yeah, definitely dragons. You know, whatever. <laughs> so, so we talk about how your time in uniform affects the way you tell the stories. Now let's talk about how it affects the way you engage with content as a consumer. So do you feel like having been surrounded by people in the military and working in law enforcement that when you read or consume fiction, that it changes how you interact with it? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, fortunately, I'm such a consumer of of entertainment that I I have a it'll sound weird when I say stoic view of entertainment because that makes me sound like you're all grim. But stoicism is really kind of accepting what you can can change, change what you can, and accepting what you can't. Blah blah blah. So I go into like we're talking about Star Wars. I go in there knowing it's going to piss me off, and so I'll just like I'll be like these are the parameters in which I'm going to watch this Star Wars movie. I'm just not going to, I'm going to try to ignore all the movies that came before and just watch this one so I can enjoy it. And I say that to say, when I watch like a military movie, I know it's probably going to get a lot of stuff wrong and anger me, but I'll, I'll just decide, am I watching a campy kind of not really realistic, um, you know, cop story or, or military story, or am I watching something that's pretty gritty? Like I watched Masul. I'm probably saying that wrong. What's have you seen that one, Jr. Uh, Mosul, Mosul, Yeah, uh, I watched that, and that was really intense. It was hard to watch. It was probably, I mean, it wasn't realistic, but it, uh, you know, it it was less um, wrong, I guess, in a lot of the tactics. And then I watched, I uh, just just for the first time watched uh, Sicario last night, and um, and that's also not realistic, but it doesn't have like the goofy car chases and people don't get shot in the gut and then come up later and say, Oh, look, I was, I was shot the whole time, but now I'm okay. <laughs> and stuff. So I guess the answer to your question is it does affect a lot because I go in there expecting that this is not going to be real. I'm going to see all kinds of things wrong with it. And I'm going to do my best not to tell my wife who's sitting next to me how wrong it is because she doesn't like that. I totally tell everyone how wrong it is when I watch history movies. Oh yeah. And I'm yeah. Like, mm, no, yeah. that's not right. You see that 12th button? They wouldn't have had that one. Okay, yeah, I'm not that exactly. bad, but. Yeah. No, I, I've had, I definitely have my one. It depends also on whether I'm in public or at home. Because at home, I'll pause <laughs> it. And we're like, we have to talk about this crap. This is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so transitioning a bit away into the fan angle, which you kind of touched on a bit. Have you had any cool fan art yet? I do. Well, and it's mostly through the Reaper books. So uh, Jeff Cheney has a, a Facebook page, uh, I think it's Jane Cheney's Renegade Readers. Yeah. And um, they, yeah, and they will put, and I've, they've had several times where they've taken like the book cover and then like Photoshop different things in, like like either Jeff's picture or my picture, 
into the main characters or some some funny social thing that's going on right now with memes. And so we get a bunch of that. Um, that's the main place where I've, I've had. You haven't had to write like a meeting to get to anybody who's actually a fan yet, have you? That might be awkward. No, no, um, no, I have not. But that's. I, I watched the thing with the character. What's the character who plays uh, John Snow? Yeah, uh, I, I know. I know the actor you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and you've probably seen the interview, and I'll keep it short because it's not really about what we're talking about. But he, I watched an interview where he got pulled over, and and. And the and the trooper, whoever asked him something about that, and he and he says, "Well, I'm coming back in the next season." And the trooper said, "Carry on, Lord Commander." <laughs> it didn't give him a ticket. <laughs> well, I thought it was funny, but that is funny. Then, I think it's hilarious. So, uh, ready? go ahead. Hmm? Oh, go ahead. I was going to ask: Has anyone asked for your autograph yet? I have had that um, several at 20 books. I've had that happen a few times um, and then a few times locally too. And people find out and they'll get a copy of my book. Um, I had a lady uh, I had a couple of ladies that were wanted my, me to sign my dark landing books. I did with Craig Martell and one of them, she says, I've read the entire series 10 times and that's 12 books. And that's I was a like, lot wow, of reading. You're a super fan. Thank you. And it made me feel really good, obviously. <laughs> so, what was it like the first time somebody asked for your signature? It, it's really cool, but I also you know, get a little bit of imposter syndrome. You know, I'm like, I, I can't, I'm like, you really want my signature? And so I'll sign it and you and you panic and you try to think of what to write. And sometimes you think of something clever. Um, and then sometimes, uh, sometimes you just sign your name if you can't think of anything. So and you, they're, they're fine with it either way, usually. That's fair. We all have our less than witty days. Like yeah. they are. They he has them 350 days a year. <laughs> JR. <laughs> you must have his mic muted. He's not defending. I himself. did, I did. I was gonna say something, but it's a good thing, you know, there was there was four letters involved, but it's all good. <laughs> I, I made the mistake of telling her the first time someone asked me for my autograph. I was so excited I misspelled my name. But I mean, come on, I don't write cursive that often, all right? Like, how often yeah, do you exactly. actually use cursive these days? Oh, yeah, you, you can't read my signature at all. But, oh, but if you're cool. signing your name for a book, that you they kind of want to be able to read it, right? Yeah, so, oh, yeah. So you, you got to go well, a little slower. Here's the thing. It needs to be consistently enough the same that it can be verified as being your signature. Right, yeah, there you go. Fair, fair. Yeah. The coolest, so, the coolest... Uh, fan story I've ever had um, was, so my wife and I go work out at this place called Orange Theory and one of our coaches there is real nice. Well, and she said that my dad, her dad had read my books. And for some reason, I assumed that she, and we had this conversation several times over a course of a month, she would mention it. And so I assumed that, that she had told her dad that one of her clients wrote books and then she looked me up and then he read them and he liked them. Because I've had that happen a few times. People will mention, hey, so-and-so writes. And then they look it up and they read the books. and like, yeah, they, they like your book. And it's very, it makes you feel very good. But what actually happened was her dad was talking to her about a book she he, he had just read by a guy named Scott Moon. And she was like, I know him. And he's like, what are you talking about? And so they went and they figured out. And it was actually, he was reading one of my books, but he didn't. He wasn't introduced to anybody I know. So it was like a true organic out in the wild fan thing. 
and I and I was that was really amazing to me. That that's when I felt like felt like uh, <clears throat> I'm making some progress in this book publishing thing. So speaking of progress in the book publishing thing, uh, this is the part of the interview where Scott Moon gets to tell us everything he's written. So can we get the Reader's Digest version of your body of work, the highlight reader? <laughs> This, this is like the question I get all the time from people when they first find out I write. They're like, how many books have you published? And I'm like, I don't know. And they look at me like I'm retarded or something. Uh, but uh, because it's hard, to, it's hard to calculate the way Amazon, because Amazon tells me I've written like 48 books or something. But I know some of those are novellas, so I don't count them, blah, blah, blah. But so the short answer is um, I have the Chronicle of Ken Rowland's trilogy, which is um, sci-fi, military sci-fi-ish. I have... The Dragon, Son of a Dragon Slayer trilogy, which is urban fantasy. It's basically cop, cops go to a magical world. Um, I have the Dark Landing series, which is 12 novellas. Uh, and that's a space western. It's It would be basically um, if Firefly, if you mix Firefly and Tombstone into a storyline. So that's, that's the premise of that. Um, there is Brothers in Arms, which is a military sci-fi trilogy published by Athon. I have, um, they came for blood, which is my four book alien invasion series in basically contemporary times. There is, um, uh, the, the last reaper is my, my most well-known series and it's 15 books. I'm writing the 15 book right now. And that's, uh, that one started out the pitch I gave was, okay, what if you had a decommissioned Death Star? What would you do with it? I think you could write a story on a decommissioned Death Star because it would be have a tiny bit of power, you know, to preserve it for salvage and whatnot. And and I decided it could be a prison. And I said, what if you had escaped from New York on a decommissioned Death Star? And Jeff Cheney said, write me an outline. So the next day I wrote, spent six hours writing an outline and we went over it and we tweaked a little bit and I went off to the races with that. So um, that, um, not to interrupt, but that universe, that okay. story he's talking about is actually in his Renegade Star universe, correct? Yes, that is. And, if, and so and one of the just... conditions was I had to, uh, had a, and I didn't have to, I, I read a whole bunch of his books to, to make sure I was kind of making things fit. So we actually just recently, a couple episodes back, reviewed the Renegade Star. So if you're curious, you know, uh, Saskia and I did a book review of that, that series mm -hmm. more than just the book. Um, so you should, you should check that out too. It, uh, it links yeah, to uh, the universe he's writing in to give you a little uh, more insight, which is a lot of fun. Or I like that universe. If you were a great fan and you went and bought the book and then you read it, because there was at least one person who was reading, who commented that they bought it, the book afterwards. This is what you need to read next. Oh, I get oh, lots yeah, of hate mail from people who tell me we make their to be read, red pile grow. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, you shouldn't have fed well, it water after midnight. I'm exactly. just sure every time I turn off the lights or my back is turned long enough, then my uh, to be red pile seems to breed. It could I be believe it. That's, keep making it's, more it's, books. It's a thing. It's science. I've, it happens. I've asked a few of the authors I really, really like if they could just not publish for a year or two so I could catch up. Because some people <laughs> like Scott are just prolific. And I'm like, you know, just, just give me some breathing room. I can only read so fast. But while yeah, all of those <laughs> all of those series sound fascinating, but today we're here to talk about your Blue Sun Armada series. So where did you get the premise for this universe? How did you come up with the idea for the series? So this is a series I, I, I developed a premise three or four times and, and I, I was going to go with different publishers, but eventually I did it myself. So the premise of, of the Blue Sun Armada is that because 
when you write science fiction, you're like, there's, I'm not super sciencey because I'm not that smart, but I do know that space travel is hard on the human body, right? With all the radiation and gravities and, you know, time dilation and, you know, and, and all kinds of things that can be bad to you. So the premise is 10 or 20,000 years uh, prior to the story, humanity is going to explore the galaxy. They've got just enough technology to do it, but they're still kind of squishy. So they build these cyborgs, which are basically very human cyborgs that have nanites and stuff in them and some things that help them survive the rigors of space travel. Um, but they don't want these, these cyborgs to go out and build machine planets or machine colonies. So they programmed them to believe they're human and they're incapable of believing they're not human, even though they're clearly not. And uh, so when the story starts, it's 10,000 years in the future. And they basically, the planet that they have colonized, they, they're having this huge, huge mech battle war. And they're really in a mech warfare. And the main character gets betrayed kind of Game of Thrones style and decides that he's going to lead this expedition to find the homeworld, which they, they call the Blue Sun. Later on, if you read this, a little bit of a spoiler, but not really. As they go through, he realizes that they're not talking about a blue sun, they're talking about a blue planet, which is Earth. So the, the problem is, is that they're not human, but they think they are, and they're going to meet their creators who really have no more use for them because they've done their job, and there's going to be problems. So that's the basic premise of the story. There's a lot of nuances, lots of characters, but it, it's super fun to write. I love the characters. It's one of my favorite ones I've done yet. Okay, now I'm going to have to buy it and... and... Uh, my budgeteer person that does my budgeting is going to hate me, and it'll all be your fault, <laughs> Scott. So don't spend it all in one place. Yeah, uh, there you go. I'm going to buy some we, uh, for this car. Yeah, <laughs> you got the raccoon thing going on. It's perfect. Yeah, but uh, before go. before we do that, we're going to take a moment where we dig into this cover. So, what's the story on this artwork? I really like it. Is it a Tom Edwards? It's a Tom Edwards. It's one of um, at the time uh, I, I got it actually on one of his. Uh, his pre-made deals and you know, Tom, Tom Edwards, he does this pre-mades like once a year. And I, I got on there and bought it like four seconds after the auction opened. And I made it, I tried to buy like four others, but this is the only one I could get. And so then afterwards I bought some other ones and I had some more custom ones done to finish out the series. But this is like the perfect, when I saw like, this is the perfect cover and it actually informed the story. A lot of my stories will change when I get a really good book cover, because this really put the image of them fleeing the planet um in my head you know because you can see in that they're kind of coming out of the atmosphere there's a bunch of people they're, they're they're getting out of dodge so it's like you know cyborg battlestar galactica is taking off right there well i'm i'm here for it so before we dig into the book we're going to pause for a moment where we shamelessly show for the man and i'm going to hit this commercial Good. here comes your next romp in the graveyard in hunters for hire a new urban fantasy adventure by best-selling author Jonathan Yanez. A guy down on his luck puts sign twirling and rideshare driving on the back burner to track down the supernatural for a pretty penny. Find out what happens when John Hunter enters the secret underworld. Download your copy and start listening today. Now available on Amazon and Audible. So um, I'm we sorry, were I just have to say that that narrator sounds like he's trying to hit on somebody. So I was about <laughs> to say this. So we were previewing this commercial when Jonathan sent it to us uh, for this for this show, and uh, I was listening to it. And you know, I'm, I'm hard of hearing. I lost some hearing because of the the IET. So I'm like, Mom, just listen to this and tell me if it sounds okay. She's like, Man, he sounds hot. Is he single? And all I can think of is, Mom, you're married. Mom, it's weird. Mom. Mom. 
<laughs> so I love your mom. She's that was a little awkward, and I blame Jonathan for all of it. It's all his fault. I told go. him, and he didn't feel sorry at all. He goes, "Well, did it make no, you want to buy the book?" Sorry. Yeah, he's like, "Well, did it make you want to buy the book?" It made right. his mom want to buy the book. That's for sure, <laughs> or at least the audio book. <laughs> so uh, let's move on to the the story itself. So, can you give us the thirty second elevator pitch for the Blue Sun Armada? The certain thirty second elevator pitch. Oh God. Um, so. Uh, Blue Sun Armada is a family saga, uh, military sci-fi in the spirit of Battlestar Galactica meets Game of Thrones as they fight their way across the galaxy to discover their origins. On the way, they're going to learn that um, things are not as they seem. They're not, they're not actually human, and their human creators don't, don't appreciate them anymore. They'll have a use for them, and they're going to have to find their place in this new order. And then uh, they're going to be at peace or at war eternally. So that's a pretty good uh, 30 second elevator pitch. What is it that makes this series really stand out in terms of science fiction? I mean, we've had a lot of late lost colonies and I love a good lost colony story. Uh, like Pern, JR. Ha. You mean that fantasy novel? Oh, yeah. It is not a fantasy novel. Oh, okay. Continue. We don't want to the, the uh, Pern, Anne McCaffrey's Pern. Yes. At least. Yeah. Okay. I, I lost some. I lost some of the audio there. Yeah. Uh, Pern is sci-fi. See, I'm getting a teleprompter right there. I guess I'm supposed to read that. No, it's uh, it's it's a running joke. I tell her because it has dragons that it has to be fantasy. And she right. swears that you can find yeah. dragons. Yeah. It's a running. It joke. is very. I, I read it so long ago, but I I can see that. I can see that being an ongoing argument. I win. Um, can can you repeat some of that question? Because my audio dropped there for a second. Okay, so what is it that makes uh, the Blue Sun Armada really stand out in science fiction? I think it's going to stand out for a couple of reasons, and it's mostly going to be character-based. I write really character-driven stories, but so the main character is, and, I, and you have to forgive me because I pick crazy-ass names for stuff. The main character is Duke Ron Marlborough. His actual name is you Ron Marlborough, but we call him Ron Marlborough. And then his wife is Patricia Wilson Marlborough. But what makes it unique is that they're like a fantastic couple. They really get along and, you know, they're both kind of badass and they have this ongoing romance through it. Well, in a lot of books, you know, there's a romantic interest, but it's like they're trying to get to the point where they, you know, get together. But it's, it's really interesting to see how they do that and how they're managing this family. So it's, when I say it's a family song, it's like literally a family going to space, except they happen to run this giant military household. Um, and then so there's four great houses on Gildane is the planet they start on. And there's there's four great houses that are military households. And they are Mar House Marlboro, House Spirit, um, House Bronk, and House uh, Gerard, which is the king's house. And they all, they all actually House of Tana. So there's, Gerard's different because it's the royal family. But just makes it what makes it unique is that it's the interaction between these characters and this this kind of contrant uh, espionage or intrigue, not just on the political level, but like on the family level, because there's a marriage plot. Um, this, the book actually starts off. There's a big battle in the beginning, but the book actually really gets going when Ron's son is going to court the woman he thinks he's going to marry. Her house betrays them and attacks them in a sneak attack. And the whole thing, and she doesn't know about it or she's not party to it. But the deal is 
they want to get him to come court her because by tradition, they leave their gates open during the courting process. And so then they attack and then it starts this big uh, family feud war and then they, it goes on from there. But so I think that's what's unique is just, just the, the, the amount of characters and, and their, the, the things they do. So, um, which tropes do you think you really took and uh, played with in <clears throat> Uh, wonderful series or this wonderful book the, the tropes the tropes i like most is like one of the one of my big influences actually is is uh the patrick o'brien books and um they're not sci-fi obviously but they're you know i think they're required reading at the i think in the, at the naval academy someplace they are in the military but i like that kind of really formal kind of military bearing and and they have a sense of style with it but then I also have like the rogue characters too. Like so one of the main characters is an adopted son because he had no no prospects and 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 this other this other lord had adopted him. Well, he's kind of like the Sandor Clegane type of character, except not quite as murderous. Where he's you know um, he's trying to fight his way up. You know he's trying to to improve his, his status in society. So he's you know from 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 the bottom. But you also have this, the, uh, the whole, um, just the battle sense of them, the the way they, just the way they, the way they run things, I find fascinating. So, what subgenres do you feel this fits into? I feel like it's a lost colony kind of story too. It is definitely a lost colony. It's definitely an Exodus, um, an, an, an Exodus story because they're. It's a return to Earth story, but the first three books, they haven't gotten very far to get to Earth, so it's still kind of an Exodus story. It's probably an Exodus story that's going to become a return to Earth. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase the tropes. I'm not really hitting it right. Somebody's been tongue-tied today. Um, it's just it's really a huge family military saga is, is the, biggest, the biggest trope with that. So and there, say- there's, go ahead. So when you say family saga, do you mean that as the books progress, the main character changes to the next generation, or you just mean all of the family is there? Well, a, a little of both, because if, if I, by the time I get to finishing, it's going to be like a nine book series. Um, there's going to be some changes. So it depends, I guess, by family saga, there's going to be some important things learned about Ron's father and his grandfather and why he's in the situation he is, is because of their unique personality. So one of Ron's big things is he's trying to live up to his grandfather. So it'd be kind of like, like Paul Atreides trying to live up to uh, Duke Leto, even though Paul's actually a lot bigger deal, as we find out. But you don't think you can live up to somebody like that. Um, and then, then the family has to stay. The family saga part comes in where they have to stay alive, and then you'd be the next generation. And you know, because to get to Earth, there there was a thousand years of travel, so they could in theory, be quite a lot of, of saga. I'm not sure I'm going to take it that way because I don't know if I want to develop another 57 characters to do the next generation. <laughs> we'll see what the readers want. Fair, fair. So find his fan club and then tell him what you want after you finish this oh, book. I would love that. That'd be fantastic. So just to brute force segue in at my ADHD moment, your fan club is called the Moonbase, right? Well, it's called the Scott Moonbase because I, it was called the Moonbase for a long time, and I realized 
there's an there's another Facebook group and it's called the Moon Base and it's like run by NASA and so they had a lot more followers <laughs> than I did and so I was like I guess I won't try to compete with NASA we'll call it the Scott Moon Base and so that's what I went with. I bet all those people in the when NASA he's competing with NASA to Elon Musk he seems to be winning. Oh I'm just yeah. Definitely I, I'm sure everyone that's in the NASA group is like, man, I thought this was the Scott Moon group. Why, why are I know, they like, like, what a ripoff. They haven't been a new book here for a long time. They just talk about science all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that pesky stuff, you know. Um, yeah. So can you tell us a bit about your main character and what makes them really unique and stand out in the field of science fiction? So um, I'm probably going to give you two. So the main character is Ron Marlboro. What makes him unique is he's, he's uh, cause like nowadays, a lot of it is, there's a lot of talk about uh, like, I don't really hate to say this, even like toxic masculinity, but he is a very masculine character, but in the good sense of the word, you know, he loves, loves his, his family. He loves his friends. He takes care of people. You know, he makes, he does self-sacrifice, you know, he, when he goes to, when he goes to war, goes to battle, it's not for himself. It's, you know, to protect people or save people or, or, you know, try and, you know, keep this whole civilization alive and to ensure democracy and all those types of things like that. Um, I, he's a fascinating character because he has his inner self doubts, but he also is just is very strong and able to, to push forward, even though he has those insecurities, you know, like we all do, you know, even, even the, the strongest has to be afraid or us are not really much at stake. It's not a very interesting story if they're just like a Mary Sue from the beginning. So he's very interesting. I like him a lot. And then my second favorite character is his daughter, his oldest daughter. He has two daughters. <clears throat> and and her, his oldest daughter's name is Fortune Marlboro. And she is a, a pilot. And she is, I guess she would be kind of like if, if Black Widow was a, a science fiction space pilot, then she would be kind of like her because she's um, very daring, very adventurous. She has a small team of pilots that she runs in, in her in her squadron, um, and they're a really tight group. So some squad level kind of stories there. Um, and I just, she, she's it's just interesting because she's the same way. She has she has well, I can't really give away why she's such a big deal in the story, but basically, there's a problem with her genetics, and um, <clears throat> the king is interested in her genetics and wants to have a family merger that is not what she or her family wants. And so basically it's, it's the, the sub subtext of what starts the war. And so she has some unique things to play in the, in the, um, the next evolution of humanity through these characters, because the thing is they start off as cyborgs, but they become less and less cyborgs um, as they, over the 10,000 years, and so they're getting to the point where, because they can reproduce, it's complicated, but um, they would have to, to make the story work because there's like some stories about, well, you just got good genetics and nanites from your grandfather. Like it's a normal thing to just have nan nanites that are transferred from, from one person to another. But so Fortune Marlboro's role in the story is that kind of like Dune, there's a lineage thing where they will become something different than either human or one of these cyborgs. Okay. Big mystery. Uh, I'm down for it though. So were there any secondary characters that were especially memorable to you? And if so, can you tell us a little bit about them? Yes. I like um, Redian is 
So in the beginning of the, in the very beginning of the book, Ron Marvel and his, uh, and the rest of the houses, they've defeat, defeated a group of aliens that have been trying to, trying to take over the planet for a long time called the Zesner. Um, and so as a result of that, their leader, their champion basically becomes Ron's best friend. And in, in, in the Zesner thing, they have to, he has to be the battle slave of the person who defeated them, although Ron doesn't see it that way. He keeps telling them he's not. But his friend becomes very loyal, and they have this, like, super mutual respect because they're both warlike um, cultures, and they and they go forward with that. Well, Red Ian is very scary. They call them Red Hot because they're different colors, and um, they're kind of tall, lanky, and their mechs always have four legs, so they kind of look more like a centaur when they're in their mechs. But Red Ian, he literally has a way hotter body temperature, so when you're around him, he's kind of uncomfortable to stand next to. Well his nickname with all the guards and stuff is red hot. So he's a fun character. Um, but he's, he's really, I like, I really like writing kind of the alien side characters because I get to play with how they don't see things the same way as we do. And they make different assumptions and, and they have just some surprising backstories usually. So that's probably one of my favorite secondary characters. I, I have a lot of favorite characters. This we could probably go on for a long time. <laughs> well, they're all your favorites. They're your babies. I know they are. They are definitely my favorites. So, the um, I'm trying to think of how. So obviously we don't want any spoilers. But are there any bad guys that these main characters have to confront um, that you can tell us about? There's a couple. So the 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 biggest bad guy is not a spoiler. It's pretty right off the bat. You learn. That King Gerard um, is a bad guy. Um, there's some scenes that show him as being pretty sleazy and and obviously very power hungry and obviously willing to wipe out the the family that basically helped him win this war. So and his name is King Gerard, um, and he is very interesting because he is actually you know a skilled warrior and a skilled politician and should has all the things he should be to be a good leader. But you know it's just his ego and greed and stuff is like the the common fall. Too much power too greedy. So he's a bad guy. There's also um, a character that's basically, I call him the mutant king, because one of the problems with this exodus is they have a lot of sabotage and they have to leave abruptly. So they leave on this exodus that's going to take them across the galaxy and they don't have all the ships. They don't have all the supplies. A lot of things are broken and they go to this um, mining, a bit long abandoned mining station, which is basically like a giant Death Star-like like a mining uh, space station <clears throat> and they try to reclaim it. Well, it's, they realize when they get there, the reason it's been gone offline is because there's this basic uh, alien bacteria that has, they can kind of mimic human life that's there and they have, they get into the planet, they get into the, it's called the Exactus Meridius is the name of the, of the station. And they have to fight these, these, um, this bacteria menace. And they come across as humanoids, but when you kill them, they don't really die very well. So it's a big problem. Um, so the mutant king, the mutant king, and, and they they do things like they they make a barricade. They'll make a, a barricade, but then they'll like grow humans on the front of the barricade that are like bolted to it. So they, so you don't want to shoot them because you're not sure if they're like alive or, and you know it's really horrible. So uh, scariest environment imaginable. That's all I had to say. And, so, uh, go ahead. No, and so so that's that's enough. That's that's a big arch villain. So is this story the style the way you've told this one? Is this grim dark like your urban fantasy, or is this more lighthearted? 
I would like for it to be grimdark, but for some reason, I always, I don't ever go quite as dark as George R. R. Martin. So um, it is, it is pretty harsh. Um, I don't, I don't murder off lots of characters. Some obviously are going to be in peril and, and maybe or maybe not die. Um, the mutant king stuff is, is pretty grim, but it's more like you're watching aliens, you know, um, that type of thing. I, I love the movie aliens, obviously. Excellent and, taste. Yeah, it's it's a good one. That's definitely a formative part of my creative development. So it's darker, but the characters, you, I don't have a lot of characters who are like shitty. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the characters in, in George R. R. Martin, they're not good people. They have moments where they do good things and you want them to be good. And you're like, this character's going to turn around and be a good person. But then they don't. My characters aren't <laughs> like that. I just, I find that too depressing when I'm actually writing it. Um, although I do like to read it. So th- so it's a little bit more lighthearted than that, but it's definitely going to be lots of action, lots of shooting and blowing things up and catastrophic injuries and maybe some people dying and those types of things in my space battles. So Rivers of Blood run through it. Outstanding. So speaking oh, of yeah. characters... And, you know, and sometimes when zero gravity, Rivers of Blood become clouds of blood. You know, you just, you just never know. I actually, you know, trying to figure out the the scientificness of that actually got me in some trouble with law enforcement. So I, I don't know if I ever told you, like, uh, when I wrote my first series, there was a scene with a um, sword battle in space. Why not? Right. School factor. Yeah. Sure, and the publisher was like, you know, that's not how physics works. Like, that's not how a body would react in zero G. You need to do a little more research and fix that one scene. So I called my my aunt, who's an ER nurse, and we were talking about what happens when you decapitate someone. And apparently the people at the Starbucks started giving me weird looks and scooting away. And next thing I know, I have Officer Friendly standing in front of me wanting to know what I'm planning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oopsies. So, this is so awkward. Well, yeah. luckily his wife was a writer, so it worked out. I actually still talk to him occasionally. Although his, his yeah, wife yeah. writes those kinds of stories. So that's more in keeping of like Lethal Weapon, the, the character. Right. Yeah. Those kinds sure. of stories. But uh, yeah. speaking of characters, you've just told us how horrible you are to them. You make them fight these mutant bacteria and yeah. all the things. So if they met you in a back alley, after knowing who you are as, as D. Scott Moon, the one who put them through all this torment, how do you see that interaction playing out? Are you dead in three seconds or 12? I, I see me running a lot, probably before they <laughs> knew who I was. Why did that guy suddenly run away? You know, or I guess I'd have to just sit there and take it because I probably deserve it. I mean, let's be honest. All right, but would you ask for their autograph first? Like, I, I oh yeah, for sure. I'd be like, so cool. I'd be like, hey, thanks. You have to say, you know what? Before we do this, can you tell me a few things? I got some ideas about the next book, and maybe we could have your input. Maybe we can make a deal here. You know, <laughs> work your way through that. See that goes. I don't. And maybe they I don't at least they can, they can is... at least give me some powered armor to make it evil or e- evil to make it equal. I mean, I should be able to defend myself. I should at least get a chain sword and some powered armor to, to defend myself. Doc, I think fine. this is this is the first one we've we've actually had a guest say that they would basically play hostage negotiator. Oh yeah, for sure. You know I what? Know hostage negotiators. Good luck with that. He should know all their buttons to press. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So, rather than you guys stare at the blank screen because it got dark on Scott, and then uh, yeah, Doc had to step away that. for a second. We're not. You're fine. We're just throwing up the cover to to finish this out, just because it's easier on oh, everybody. Cool. Uh, yeah. But since we're talking about characters, when you write, do you have a favorite character archetype you like to use? I have a couple. So my main, I like the guardian archetype um, because it's easiest for me to write. And I just like to see people do. And I find the guardian archetype a, a heroic archetype. And I think it's used more than people realize. Like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Like, like uh, 
John McClain is a guardian archetype because he'll suffer immensely to try and protect the people that matter to him. That's really the long and short of it. But I also like uh, the archetype of people that are trying to find their way in the world against, you know, all odds. So kind of young adults. One of my favorite characters in the Blue Sun Armada things is a character um, named Penelope Danestar. And Penelope Danestar is the woman that Victor Marlborough was courting. And her parents are idiots. They're, they're really good corporate, but they're not good with military intrigue. And they basically cause all these problems. Well, they eventually die in a horrible ship accident, you know, it had to happen. And she becomes the leader of her house and she gets put in charge of, of taming the Exactus Meridius. So you got this like 20 year old young woman who's not raised in a military house trying to, trying to lead and subdue this horribly violent threat to humanity. And, um, and I like to see her growth um, and, and how she overcomes some of these things and how she makes alliances and finds the mentors that she needs. Cause she of course, eventually kind of becomes pretty good friends with Patricia Marlboro, um, but in an interesting way where that I feel would be more realistic because a lot of times in books and movies, people never ask help from the obvious person that could totally help them. And there's no reason for them not to ask for help, but it's just to make the plot harder. So I will have them, you know, they have an interesting relationship, a mental relationship. So those are my two, the guardian and then kind of the finding your way in the world character archetype. Okay. So um, this is where we ask for a sneak peek at how the sausage was made. So were there any cool scenes or ideas that you had to cut from the first book that might show up later? The most one, the, the, the most interesting one is, so as we talked about a little bit earlier, there's the uh, everybody on Gildane, the generations it took to get there were cyborgs, reproducing cyborgs. But there was one pod of like cryo people that were have no cybernetics and they were and when they first inhabited and started taming this world they basically had their own island so they're just like normal people and they live in this little it's called the island of Mern, which was like a bastardization of america because you know ten thousand years words change and so i i really would like to write some stories or a side a spin-off of them because their their intake or their uh their experience with like going to the continent and constantly being overpowered by all their, by their creations, and they don't really know that the whole story either. But so they go to the to the mainland where everybody's a cyborg, even though they don't look like them, and everybody's stronger, everybody's faster, everybody lives three times as older as long as they do, and and how how they deal with that world and compensate. So I think that'd be a pretty cool story. Okay, I'm down for it. I'll read that too. But um, <laughs> finally, what can you tell us? Sorry, Harper and Medicine didn't mean to eat on the show. But um, no, the miniseries, the, the worlds where the story is told is as much a character as the antagonist and the protagonist. So why don't you give us a hint of what we can expect from this world? So it sounds like the world, they're leaving that pretty quickly, correct? Yes. But it's so never going to leave them. You know. So you don't show a lot about what happened after they left. So that's that's where you're talking about the story about the Amurn come from? Right, and so the, in the emerge in this fleet that, that flees, they they wind up getting a, a ship or part of a ship, and so they're um, in the in the third book. There's a scene where uh, Ron realizes so they have to reclaim this kind of like this outpost, and he realizes, and there's some build up to it that he's going to need them, 
because they're because Ron is not going to have the genetic code to get through some of the security checks, and so he needs like basically uh, somebody who's just a normal person, and so he's got to bring them on this mission and keep them alive because they're so fragile compared to how all of his people are, and so um, so there's that aspect. But the interesting thing about Gildane, the world, it's very Earth-like, but it doesn't really like it's. It kind of has its own. It doesn't really want them there either. So nature's kind of always against them there. Um, but really, the, the the world is going to mostly be ship life, which I find really challenging to write. That's one of the things I realized I had committed myself to a lot of ship living. Um, so I have dealt with it in two ways. They have different sizes of ships, obviously, and some big ships. You know, you have your your generation type ships and whatnot. But then they have the Exactus Meridius, which they're going to convert into a ship and take with them. And it's literally the size of a of a of a world, and they're going to have to tame that throughout the series, and until they get it to where it becomes this whole basically, you know, world in space. And there's lots of potential for that because there's hundreds so, of levels to it. So is this going to be like an O'Neill cylinder, or is this literally just spaceship? I mean, do you have like anti-gravity and all in the like or is this zero like how, how do you have the tech yeah the they, they they have they have some gra- i mean and i don't go super deep into the science but they do have gravity the dra- you can lose gravity but they have a couple of different ways they deal with the gravity and to have it on ships large and small um and then the uh part of their part of their journey is you know because it was going to take them a thousand years to find the blue sun or, or the blue world um, until they find some technology from some of these other races that can become involved in, as they go. And they've basically got these rings that they can fabricate around their ships that are kind of like, uh, you know, their jump gates, basically. And so that will get them places faster. Well, the, the challenge is, is how to get a jump gate big enough for the Exactus Meridius. So there's some, there's some plot complications with how to figure that out. But yeah, the main thing, so the, the world is it's a world in space. Now, the nice thing is, is the further I go with the series, they can, I'm planning to them encounter other worlds and then they will explore new worlds, which I always find very, I do that a lot in the Reaper series where they come to a new world and they got to go explore it and it's totally different than the last one. I find that So before we move on, I do have, so in many, like, so you mentioned a little bit of the inspiration was Battlestar Galactica. And in that one, it was very, I don't want to say grim dark because that's not the right word. Mm-hmm. The ship atmosphere was very dingy and, and dirty. And it mm-hmm. was obvious that, that they were, you know, on ships that were past their prime. Is that what it's like in your series or are the ships well-maintained? Like what kind of ambiance do the ships put off just the living there? It really depends on which ship you're on. So um, <clears throat> some of the ships are brand new. Some of the ships are really old. Some of the ships are converted freighters that they've tried to make into like either a, a farm ship or something. And and the ships are very damaged. So the main ship, the flagship, is the Indomitable. And it has been almost completely destroyed twice. And the Zesner, who spent a lot more time in space more recently than, than, than our main characters, they're really good at fixing ships. And so the ship's all torn apart, but lots, lots of parts of it are brand new. You know, they're kind of unfinished and super bright and everything's really clean because it's they had to literally just they just rebuilt it on Tuesday, you know, one of those things. So there's there's a couple of different variations. And then each house um, has their own ships. Some have more than others. And they will all kind of have their own decor, I guess, for lack of a better term. So there'll be a different, lots of chances for different types of ambiance when they do delegations to other ships. So 
you now have three books out, but yes. it sounds like, did you say nine is what you were thinking earlier? I have nine book covers. I'm a chronic book cover buyer. And so I kept buying every time, every year or so. Um, well, so I bought some books on that Tom Edwards had through his, his, uh, his pre-mades. And he mm -hmm. has like three levels. So I bought, I managed to get some of those, but then I also contracted someone had designed. So all of the, the, the covers aren't out yet, but if you go to my, if you go to the Scott moon base, the cover for book four is there and that's a Mac and it's a Tom Edwards Mac. And at the time he hadn't done Macs. And so he basically made this Mac template for me. And so to make buying, so a lot of the covers are Mac covers. And then a lot of the covers are big space battle covers because they're going to run into some space battles um, as they go through this, this, this journey. And so okay. I just keep, I keep collecting covers. And so I'm like, I, and I love the idea. And so I basically outline um, the nine books. It sounds crazy, but that's, I, I literally have a problem buying book covers. I buy so many book covers I can't use. And then I, I'll, I'll outline the right, because I want to write all the books. I'll see a book cover and want to write it. Because I'll be like, this could be a great story. And then I'll think about it for a couple of days. I'm like, okay, here's the story. And then I will do a rough outline of that so that I can kind of like get it out of my system. So I have lots of those laying around. Maybe someday they'll get written into books and then I'll have like a trillion books and nobody will know where to start. That's what always amuses me when you get those authors or the new authors that will ask you, how do you get your ideas? And I'm like, what are you talking about? How do you make them stop? Yeah, no, I, I that's my biggest problem is. And so like I write really fast because I want to retire and write full time. And we have this discussion in my writers groups and stuff. But the real reason I write fast, the biggest reason is, is because I started this story and I want to finish it. But now I got five other stories and I want to finish those stories, too. And so for me, it's <laughs> always a battle to finish all these stories. You know, because I have, I have, I have two or three thrillers I've started. I have some urban fantasies I've started. I, I, you know, I have some, I have more, more military space opera and cyborg things. Um, I just, I really need to focus. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes there are authors that'll die and after they die, like books just keep coming out because somebody's writing them and saying, oh, look, we just found another novel in their trunk. My, like my, you, my, my point, it'll be, my you'll be the plan. That, you with know. you, that's going to be like the first time. It's like, no, for real. They really in his trunk. There's 27 more. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I'm actually, so I, I want to retire from my current job pretty soon here. And so my, one of my things is I'm trying to write like a couple of full series and not publish them at all. And so I'm going to finish the rest of the Blue Sun Armada series and I'll have that ready to go so that when I start launching them, they will come out closer together than the first three did. And then I have two or three other series that I'm going to try to finish over the next year or two um, so that when I retire, if I start getting scared that I'm not making enough money, I can always just launch a series that's already done. And that's, that's uh, that sounds that sounds, makes me sound like a lunatic, but that's just what I'm doing. The best <laughs> kind, though, because you provide Doc and I with books. So No, oh, I, just, I mean, yeah. actually, it makes a lot of sense. I know Mel Todd, when the, she did the Twisted Luck, she insisted on having three of the books completely done. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then she and she had outlined more. So, yeah, well, she and, and even published the first one. So I think with the way readers can be so voracious these days, particularly, it's not a bad idea. People like to binge. And I think Netflix taught us that. But it also gives me the freedom to work on things that aren't making me money right now, like I don't make any money with urban fantasy, but I still enjoy writing it. 
And so I can write one and it doesn't interfere with anything else. I just I always write on my most important books first. And then if I have time later, I write a little bit more. So I've actually just started reading in some urban fantasy. So we'll have to have you back on a different interview to talk about the urban fantasy because I find that subject fascinating. Um, but, my my uh, urban fantasy is going to be a lot different than what's out there right now. And and that's uh, that's kind of by design and it may commercially fail, but I'm still going to write it the way I want to write it. So there you go. All right, Doc, well, I'm I sorry to interrupt you again. No, I think there's been a big push for um i've seen some more urban fantasy doing really well that is uh less lovey-dovey romancy that's exactly yeah because i don't write good romance i tried to write some romance books and, and it just didn't work that well i mean it's I'm, fine I'm kind of somewhat allergic to um, human romancy emotions so it works better <laughs> for me not to have them um but every universe has its own internally consistent science and you definitely have even though you're you claim not to be a sciencey fancy person you <laughs> definitely have that a structure in place so yeah. what kind of science could we expect from these books so from the blue sun armada uh, books i mean i always always struggle with the same types of things so to write space opera um, or military. So the, my opinion, space opera is when you, one of the key tropes of space opera is you go to lots of planets. You know, you're always going to different places like Star Wars or Firefly or things like that. Um, whereas military sci-fi could, in theory, happen in one planet, but usually most stuff I've read, there's some space travel. So you always, as a sci-fi author, you always struggle with this, the same things like, how do they do space travel? How do they have how do how do they have weapons? Because I think actually having a plasma weapon, I think scientifically, some stuff that I've read, it would be extremely hard to have an actual plasma gun, um, and lots of other things. But you could, in theory. So a sci-fi has to be maybe possible in the future. Um, so you have to structure all those things. So the science in this one, I'm trying to be consistent with the the difficulty of space travel, um, give some reasonable. Um, some some realism towards what the space battles would be like while still having fun. So like if you read David Weber and some of those others, their space battles are really slow and long range because that's probably how it would be because you're probably it's shooting your weapons. You can fit in the waves of missiles. Yeah, exactly. Waves of missiles. But I also want to have some some fighter pilots, which is probably a really dumb thing to have in space. But I'm going to have them anyway. Is one of the reasons it's dumb to have a fighter pilot in space is because the G's would would kill them. Well, all my characters are cyborgs that are made to handle that kind of crap, so they can do some pretty nasty space battle maneuvers and things like that. So there's there's cybernetics. There's some it will go into some explanations about how the nanites replicate and then are passed on through birth. Because I really wanted to have a, a legacy, so they had to be able to reproduce as cyborgs. And when I first started, I'm like, this is going to be a tough sell. But the more I write it, I think it actually kind of makes sense that you could. Why couldn't you pass on some self-replicating? Because nanites don't have to be made out of metal. I mean, they can be made out of any type of um, substance that can be manipulated by the programming. And so that's kind of how those things go. And like one of the things you talked earlier about Ron, one of the reasons Ron's interesting physically is that he's had so much damage to him. He's had some weird uh, adaptations. So like he has like metal bands that have grown around his torso to kind of support his inner abdominal cavity. So she doesn't, he doesn't blow out his back for the 10th time and things like that. So they, they have some, some weird uh, mutations based on my 
my very scientific understanding of how things work. So of all the tech you invented, which one would be the one that you're like, I will take that and I will use it today and in this universe? Definitely the the the, uh, the medical nanites because and my characters can take a lot of abuse and come out of a battle where they should have died feeling like they have a hangover. So that's that's pretty handy. It makes you able to punish your characters so much more. And as a person right now, you know, I got some, I got some knee and hip pain for the last six years. I would like to go away and voice some nanites. Fixing that up would be great. I would love that. See, you're all being responsible. So now I feel bad asking, how would you abuse that tech? Well, yeah, and obviously use it to be a superhero or something. I mean, that's the way you would go with with that type of tech. Although I do have um, what I call them. Um, I do have powered swords too. So they're I, originally I started I started writing them, and I realized I was using chain chain swords, which is a little too. Um, uh, Warhammer 40k. Warhammer 40k. So, yeah, so now they have they have some powered swords, which are basically they're more like uh, instead of being like a chainsaw sword, they're more like one of those kitchen knives that kind of go back and forth, oscillating knives like yeah. that, but at a really high speed. So we have some of those things. I might take one of those because that would be terrifying if if somebody tried to attack you and you whip that thing out, it probably wouldn't want to fight you anymore. So uh, I can imagine they wouldn't. So you already covered the fact that you have aliens in your universe, but can you tell mm -hmm. us a bit about what kind of inspired how you want the aliens, how you went about them, making them? Were they nightmares, too much coffee, um, <laughs> watching aliens too often? So the aliens are interesting because I wanted, at first I just started, I need, I wanted to have these aliens are fighting against, but then as I, I'm like, okay, what would their mechs look like? Well, I'm like, well, they're different. They they walk and they're they're bipedal like humans, but their mechs are always have four or more legs, and so they just think differently. But so I was like, well, I got to make them different. So what? How can they be different but same? And so they're taller, they're lankier, they're they're strong, but they don't look like a muscular human because the way their muscle insertions work on their skeleton, um, they they run at a different temperature and some things like that. And then some of them that I run into, they have like six sets of eyes, but they're Kind of like humanized they're kind of disturbing to look at to be honest um <clears throat> but then i was like well why are they here why are they fighting against the humans and basically there's a big miscommunication whereas um the the zesner were sent by another race called the talgar who know about the whole thing about the real humans and these cyborgs they call them near humans and that's the first clue that they're not actually human is the zesner keep calling his Zesner friend keeps calling him a near human. He's like, that's really offensive. Why do you call me a near human? I'm human. Give me a break here. But when Ron tries to think about what that actually means, that he might not be human, it basically shuts you down and you have like crippling whole body migraines and stuff like that. So their, their program keeps him from facing the truth. And um, But so the aliens, how I developed them is I wanted to be in a certain culture. Um, I developed kind of what their what their goals were, you know, what their culture was trying to do, um, and the fact that they were basically also star travelers who've come a very long ways and lived in space, and now they're having to fight on these planets and how they adapt to that. And you know, it's it's mostly like this is an alien race who's smarter smarter than we are. This is the environment they have to survive. How would they adapt? So I guess that's a shorter answer of, of how I develop my aliens. And then I always go, 
okay, now how can I make them less human? Because they would probably be not very human if we ever met somebody from, you know, multiple star systems away from ours, as far as how they think. Do you dive in at all into how long it takes that cultural drift to happen? I mean, obviously you've set this like, you know, exponentially into the future, but, but have you thought about that? And does it come up at all? Like how long it took that cultural drift to happen? I, I make some references, but basically the, the, the closest I narrow it down is that they've been at this for 10,000 years. Um, and, and I don't go a lot beyond that, but I also throw in there that the speed of which they're having evolution is different because technology has been thrown into the works. Um, and then I also is never, you're never really told exactly how old Ron and Patricia are by normal earth biological standards, but you get the feeling that they're probably a couple hundred years old, but they kind of look like 40 year olds, you know, and that's just the way they do. And so when they die of old age, it's a little different than when we die of old age. And usually they die because somebody kills them. Um, but eventually they're going to wear out and their nanites will give up or go offline by some sort of predetermined code or something like that. But so what you're told basically is they've been they've been doing this thing for 10,000 years. They're not the same as when they started and they probably live two or three hundred years each. Um, and they have their own personal changes they go through in their life. They actually change during their lifetime. Like I talked about with all the modifications to kind of protect his body because he keeps getting injured. Um, and, and that goes for how they think and how they express emotions, too, because you have to remember that all of their emotions are technically simulated emotions. And, and so one of the things I don't know if I answered in the story, but I am very fascinated by it, like what is the difference between an emotion and a perfectly simulated emotion? And so when you, deal with, when you deal with the two main characters who are deeply in love and committed to each other, you know, Ron and Patricia, is that real? And does it matter? That's a deep question. That's part of the fun of sci-fi. I know. I was thinking about that stuff. Yeah, like, they, they cover that really well in the Expanse series about how cultural drift happens. So did you address if they are machine? Are they weak to EMPs? Or did you do you take that into account when, when they're designed? Yeah, they're going to have some problems with that. Um, they're going to have some problems with that when they meet the humans. Because the humans are going to send a shutdown order. And um, and what what's the only thing that's going to save them is that they have all these Zesner with them, but it doesn't affect the Zesner because the Zesners are not part of that. And um, the this generation of children from Gildane, like so, Ron's youngest daughter Penelope, she's like ten, and she runs around with these Zesner kids all the time. She's kind of like Arya from Game of Thrones, but not as murderous because she hasn't been put in that situation yet. But uh, yet, <laughs> yet you know, you never know what's going to happen with these things. But uh, but so there's a scene that I'm working on in the next book where the humans basically send the sh they decide they don't like the way that their creations have gone. And they said, well, we have a plan for this. We're sending the shutdown order. And they basically turn them all off or try to. But it doesn't affect the Zesner. Um, some people like Ron are more resistant because they've mutated away from their original creation. So they the, 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 the shutdown doesn't affect them as well as it should. Um, but it still knocks them down and they can't function well. So there's a, there's a, there's a period where the fleet is completely run by Zesners who are the conquered and the children. And so Peps is like basically thrust in this place of leadership and she's 10 and she's got to like help lead this entire armada 
and get all the adults woke up so they can fight off this massacre that's coming. All right, dude, you sold me already. All right, so is this tax deductible if I buy your books? I'm just asking for a friend. I think it is. It's research for science fiction writing. There we go. So I'm good. Hey, Doc, you can make it research for the podcast. We'll call it all tax deductible. There you go. Did you say tax or DAX? Tax. Oh, neither one is wrong. Tax deductible is great, whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So clearly, this interview is winding down as she mocks my uh, pronunciation yet again. Uh, but uh, is there anything we didn't ask you about the Blue Sun Armada um, that you want to tell us about before we move on? Um, no, you guys are doing great. You have great questions. This has been probably one of my my favorite interviews I've done for a very long time. I mean, I can obviously just start. If you let me loose, I will bore you to death because I'll tell you, I'll probably talk about it all night. Um, but I, I really love this story. And the thing about this is this is a passion project that I've been writing between other projects for a couple of years, actually since about 2018, so four years now. And uh, I just, I really like it and I hope people give it a chance and they like it too. Uh, so is this out in audiobook as well or is this just ebook and paperback right now? I'm still working on the audiobook. I have a few a few possible audiobook publishers, but um, we haven't got um, to an agreement on how or when that's going to be done. Okay, so nobody's going to read it to you. You're going to have to read it to yourself, people. But it is out there, and you should buy it because it sounds amazing. So this is the part uh, where we wind up, and I remind you, dear listener, to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right book. So do that thing, people. Hop over on Amazon, leave a review. Is this on? Is this just an Amazon exclusive, or is it everywhere? It's Amazon exclusive right now. It's an ebook, paperback, and hardback. Okay, so uh, you can also hop over on Goodreads and BookBub and all the other sites to leave reviews. And if that's not enough for you, you can start a blog and leave a book review there. And say all the best things about it, and Scott will love you forever. And he might even I will. if you a write fact. a good enough review. That's true. So, it's science. Yeah, it's um. I hear for every review, he gets five more minutes to torture another rookie, and that's how it works, right? <laughs> yeah, and they need to be tortured. Let's be honest. They had it coming for sure, but yeah, uh, they definitely earned that. So, do rookies talk about like boots in, in the military? Like this one time at boot camp, do rookies put like this one time at the police academy? Is that a thing? <laughs> yeah, that's the one time. But did you die? No, that type of thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I say that whenever anyone complains about my driving, but did you die? So did, did uh, you die? <laughs> yeah. So as we wrap this up, um, can you tell listeners how they can find you? And as usual, it'll be in the show notes, people. The the best way is I have a, a webpage, scottmoonrider.com. Um, you can also go to the Scott Moon Base on Facebook and uh, jump in there and we'll, we can talk and joke and have a good time. All right, outstanding. He is a fun guy, so you should do that, people. Uh, you can find us over on the Twitters at twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show. Twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. You can join us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blastersandbladespodcast. Again, backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast you can join the uh website over at anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades again anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades uh where as little as 99 cents a month you can help keep the lights on and that's duly appreciated so if you want to if you want to help keep the 
the insanity rolling, we would appreciate it. And if you're noticing a theme, just about anywhere you look for us on the interwebs, it will be as Blasters and Blades or Blasters and Blades podcast. And finally, if you want to support the show over at buymeacoffee.com, uh, you could do that. It's buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Put in the comment section that is for the podcast, and I promise I will keep Doc Seska and Nick Garber duly intoxicated. They will drink water until their <laughs> intestines explode. Uh, that didn't work. I'll work on the better transition, people. <laughs> I just don't want you to think we're all alcoholic because we're not. Right, right. There's other things to drink. There's okay. other things to drink. J.R., Thank you for spending some of our your precious time with us. For the absentee Nick Garber, the uh, apparently very confused, especially tonight, J.R. Hanley. I'm <laughs> Seska. This was the Blasters of Blades podcast. We'll be back same time, same place next week where we indulge our love of nerd, cu nerd culture, cheesy jokes, torturing, and J.R. Because that's the best part.